Before we get into this week's episode, we just wanted to let you know, or remind you anyway, that we launched a newsletter recently. Uh, it explores the five senses. Suggestions for your senses every Saturday at 9 a.m. It's a short read. There's five articles um, of what we find, what Spencer and I find to be the most interesting things happening at this moment to engage those five senses. Yeah. So if you like the podcast, you're probably going to like the newsletter. We recommend you sign up. You can just go to slowdown.tv and you'll see the sign up right there. We think you'll dig it. Sign up. Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Today in the studio, we have Craig Robbins, the co-founder and co-owner of Design Miami Fair. He also developed the Miami Design District. He's an art collector, a philanthropist. What'd you guys get into? All of the above, but also, and you know, I think most importantly, focused on the idea of community, specifically community building. And it's something he's done throughout his career, starting in South Beach, uh, redeveloping Art Deco buildings and really creating a whole community there. Like South Beach as we know it now is is in large part thanks to Craig. Yeah, He's also done it again with, the Design Miami Fair and helping bring Art Basel to Miami, and most recently with the Design District, which is one of the more sort of remarkable urban plans I've seen. I mean, so many architects and interesting schemes in one place. And he's somebody who's a rare businessman developer who actually truly understands how to create culture in a way that's actually meaningful, isn't just a bunch of marketing speak. Yeah, absolutely. He's incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited yeah. to listen to this interview. This is Spencer and Craig. Today we have Craig Robbins in the studio. Uh, welcome to Time Sensitive, Craig. It's great to be here. It's a wonderful studio. So in doing research for this uh, conversation, I came across two quotes of yours a couple years apart. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> they actually have to do with time, and this being a podcast where sort of time is the central conceit. I thought I'd open up with them. One, which was published in City Lab. Uh, in 2015 was that you said time is an important ingredient in making a neighborhood successful. Three years later, last year in town and country, you said, whenever you truly invent something, it takes time. I liked both of these quotes for similar and sort of different reasons, but you're somebody who clearly plays the long game. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about that. Like, how do you think about time as a developer, as somebody who's also been a lifelong Miami resident, seeing neighborhoods shift, being a part of those shifting neighborhoods. Everything has a process. It has a life. And if it's real, then time becomes a, a source of strength. You, you, you need to allow things to evolve. 
and to nurture them along the way, and then to be able to adapt to whatever is contemporary. And it's all a process. I work with neighborhoods, and I'm not doing what Disney World does. I really admire Disney World, but they sort of build something that's fake, that's an experience. They open it up, and it essentially stays the same. Whereas a neighborhood is an organic place. It's about people. It's about structure. It evolves over time. And using that is what makes places special because Mm. as each increment of time passes, a place can get a little bit better or it can get a little bit worse. And if it continues to get a little bit better, Mm. then it really becomes special over time. Yeah. Well, and some of what we're, we're talking about actually is this sort of idea of, of culture. And, uh, I was just reading a book the other day where, where this came up. Uh, it's pretty interesting when you understand the etymology of the word culture, which is this idea uh, from the mid-15th century of tilling the land, preparing earth for crops. From Latin, cultura, which is sort of a cultivating. Clearly what you've built sort of time and again and, and are trying to do now with the design district is build a culture. Do you think about what you're building in sort of agricultural terms? <laughs> Well, that's a really interesting question. I think societally, we we all go back to a point where we went from being hunter-gatherers to moving towards an agrarian world. And that is what facilitated us being able to live closer together and begin to build communities. So it's not just the process of farming but it's the implication of being able to now take our time and spend it doing something else other than just hunting and gathering in order to subsist. And that's really the point from which mankind began to transition from being primitive to being modern. Mm. And obviously cultivating crops requires tilling of the soil, respecting the land, from an urban development perspective, how do you think about that? Like respecting neighborhoods and respecting both the, the literal physical environment, but also the social one. There's two different starting points. One is when you walk into an existing neighborhood and the other is when there's just a piece of land. And in most cases, I've worked in historical neighborhoods. And when you do that, there's a lot of things that are defined and there's also historical assets, mainly Mm. historical structures, but there's also usually some kind of an urban grid. And the key is then to figure out how to respond to it and move it forward. When I began my career, I was working in what had become a seriously declining, nearing defunct area of Miami beach called South beach there it had transformed into becoming a retirement village um, and it had an elderly population that was dwindling their their children had succeeded more so it was a generation of post-world war ii immigrants that had come to the u.s worked in factories primarily a jewish population and on social security they moved into these little art deco hotels these tiny rooms had maybe a little kitchenette in those rooms and were able to live, but their children had done better and could do more. So there wasn't like a follow-up population Mm. to replace them. 
And for a period of time, they had preserved the buildings and the buildings were preserving them. When I, <laughs> when I got involved, the, the question was, and, and conventional wisdom was, it should all be torn down because there's no real way to take a three-story, 50-room hotel and make it work. Like the, the business norms had proven or thought they had proven mm. that that wouldn't work. And a group of us, uh, there were preservationists, there were sort of community activists, and there were developers. And we were the small, tiny minority of developers thought there was a way to make it work. And we had to figure out how to adaptively reuse those buildings. From my point of view, when we all think about what a dynamic city Miami is now and how it's a city of the future, that period, the emergence of South Beach and the fact that we had this unique architecture, the largest collection mm. of Mediterranean revival and Art Deco architecture in the world in one place, that's what was a catalyst to Miami going through this period of, of transformation and progress. And it was a totally contrary in view, but it's one that worked because it was special. And we took what was there and we nurtured it in a way where that became the attribute. And then we added a lot of things to it and it caused a renaissance in Miami. It really made Miami a, a, an attractive and dynamic place to come to. Mm. I think it's worth mentioning this was like the, the late 80s through the, through the 90s. You were 24 when you started DACRA in 1987. I'm curious, how did you know, a 24-year-old Craig Robbins understand the importance of these buildings? What was it about your understanding of design, urban planning, or just culture in general at the time that led you to understand that these were worth saving? It was really interesting. At first... I was a believer, but only a partial believer. And then an experience that I had actually made me realize how important it was. And it was an unfortunate experience for the community, but it's one that really galvanized us. Mm. There was a, a group of people who had assembled a, a very large block of the Art Deco buildings. In fact, a block of properties that I, along with a partner and mentor, eventually acquired. And they had put a ton of capital into the neighborhood buying these properties and they felt they needed a parking lot. And so they wanted to tear down one of their historical properties. It was called the Senator Hotel. It was on 12th Street in Collins Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, these, what I thought then, I don't think this now, but these crazy preservationists were sitting out there and protesting and the symbol of the preservation movement, the leader, Barbara Kapitman, was like standing in front of the bulldozers and blocking them. And I was thinking, you know, why can't these people who are putting so much in take down one building? And I remember how my attitude so dramatically shifted when the Senator Hotel was gone. Mm. That was a vacant lot. This group of people did absolutely nothing with any of their properties, and we would never have the Senator again. And at that point, I shifted. I went from being a believer in preservation, but with exceptions to feeling it was really important that we not do that. We figure out how to make things work without tearing down these irreplaceable hmm. parts of our legacy. And so it changed me. I, I made a mistake. And sometimes 
the way you learn the most is by making a mistake. It's interesting in the context, you know, of, of thinking about this, you know, 30 years later, sustainability obviously has become such a buzzword in design and a lot of it has to do with sustainable materials. But here there is a process that actually was sustainable from the start. It was, it was saving, trying to save these buildings and, and sustain them in a neighborhood. And figuring out how to make them work mm. because a lot of times things are built and they don't meet the needs and the standards of a new period of time. And so they have this incredible historic beauty, but they don't function as well as new things. If you mm. look at a car from the 50s, the cars today, they all work better, you know, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a bunch of ways. But that design, that legacy, that beauty, that collectability of that amazing car from the 50s, it's also irreplaceable. And as a collector, that's what I really love. I love the the new creativity, you know, the frontier from which mankind is advancing, but it's grounded in a history. The really important statements, they're taking into account what's been done and they're moving it forward. Mm. And that combination is a big part of what makes a community. Mm. We'll get back to the design district and collecting. I want to first kind of go to your childhood in Miami growing up there. You're born in 1963. Uh, your father, Jerry, was a successful developer here in New York City or, or broker. And then he decamped to, to Miami uh, where he became a successful developer. I understand he, he raised you and your siblings on Star Island and was a huge influence to you. Could you talk about uh, your, your father and, and your childhood? Yeah, my father grew up in New York and um, and in the late 50s, he moved to Miami and began a career. And he sort of had a middle-class upbringing and became very successful in business. He's a, a brilliant man. And I always look at my success is largely just attributable to him and an extension of him. There were three great mentors in my life, and my father's the most important one. My father taught me to think, mm. and he taught me a pretty simple principle about business. You know, you, you always want to have minimize your downside and maximize your upside. And it sounds very simple. And it is, but if it's applied, you're in a pretty safe position because it means that you're always putting yourself in a position where you're less likely to lose everything and you're still getting the most out of it that you possibly can without taking too much risk. And that translated for me into an important part of neighborhood building. And that is to make sure that each little component that I build in a neighborhood that I work in, that it makes financial sense and it stands on its own. And that's what most developers do. They buy a piece of land and they figure out how to maximize the value and turn it into something that's profitable. But when you're a neighborhood builder, there's an extra ingredient. And that is that the criteria is not just that what you put on that one piece of land is profitable, but it will make the whole neighborhood worth a little bit more. Mm -hmm. 
And so you get two profits. The first profit is on the piece of land, but the second profit is that all the other assets that you own in that area, they're worth more. And so I took what my father taught me and have applied it, and it's been really helpful. Mm. It, it gave me this sense of perspective. A lot of times we're all inclined to take risks that we shouldn't take or to do things that we shouldn't take. And just that one simple principle of always rubbing a couple pieces of wood together and making a little flame <laughs> and then nurturing it and getting it to be bigger and bigger without doing something mm. to blow it out. I mean, is that how you justify something like, say, the the pergolas designed by the Burlake brothers, which might seem like an you know custom designed thing? Is that really necessary? You know, among the most renowned designers in the world, clearly that adds a a, a value. Where do you see that? I think that art, design, and architecture they establish a very profound sense of place. And by working first, thinking of the urban design, the way a neighborhood is laid out, and then using art, architecture, and design to make it special, it increases the value. Returning to my father's lesson for a moment, mm -hmm. as your resources increase, you can always reinvest more into the quality of your brand or, or what you're trying to communicate in any business. And the key is to do it within proportion to what you can afford. So my partners at El Catterton and I were doing well in the design district. And with the success we were having, we reinvested a lot of it into the design and the architecture and the way the whole neighborhood works. What that did was it gave us this unique sense of place and you can go to a lot of other streets in Miami and they're like ours, but ours has the mm. beautiful installations by the Burlack brothers and right. theirs doesn't. And so that makes ours special in its own way. And it gives you a connection to it that is different than you'll get standing in a bunch of other corners in the city of Miami. And so you'll remember the design district in part for that. And you might remember it consciously, or you might remember it unconsciously, mm. but it's going to give you a sense of connection and pleasure. It's going to enrich the experience of being there in a way that will hopefully make you remember it, have positive feelings about it, want to come back and tell your friends, you <laughs> got to go check out that place. It's pretty yeah. cool. Well, it's interesting. You know, you hear people talk a lot about placemaking, but I think what you're kind of describing is sense making too. It's actually like engaging your senses. Um, I experienced that anyway with the with the burlap installation where I like I wanted to touch it. I, you know, I was obviously like looking at it, and it kind of does create something that is unlike anywhere else. It does cause you to slow down. Does cause you to think about that thing. And all marketing can penetrate you in the most superficial way or it can penetrate you in a much deeper way. And I'm not speaking of marketing in the commercial sense. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying what, what makes you remember things and connect with them, it has to do with how profoundly they impact you. 
And I think that art, architecture, and design is is vital if you want to impact people in a more profound mm-hmm. way. So where did this kind of all start? I understand when you were 19, you were studying at the University of Barcelona, and that's where you kind of found your love of these things you're describing, art, architecture, design. It was at Goya and Dali and in the Prado Museum or? Well, I I began in Madrid Mm. and didn't know much about art and started to go to the Prado Museum just as a tourist. And for some reason that I can't explain, it seems kind of weird describing it. I became fascinated with Goya so much so that for a week or two, I went back to the Prado every day. I would bring books and I would stand in front of the paintings and I would read about you know, the art historical importance of them and look at the paintings. And after that, I was affected in a different way. I was, I don't think I could have ever stopped looking at art after having that experience. Mm. Goya to me was the gateway. And in the Prado, there's amazing paintings by Velasquez, Bosch, Rubens. I mean, there's lots of great art there. But for me, the one that affected me most profoundly was Goya. And it was probably the black paintings. Mm. And if if I read this right, the first piece that you got in your collection was around that same time. And it was a, it was a a sketch by Dolly that you managed to get for $5,000. Yes. Um, I don't think I paid that much because I doubt (laughs) at 19, I had that kind of money, but after living in Madrid, I then, um, and going to school there over the summer, kind of trying to learn Spanish. I then began at the university of Barcelona for two semesters. So the academic year. And in that process at the beginning, I was really living an interesting Spanish lifestyle. I would, um, get up sometime around 10, 11 o'clock by like 12 or one, I would have my act together, go to lunch at two, at four, attend some classes or five after the siesta period. Then I would go out to the nightclubs and then I would go to sleep and wake up again late in the morning. And I was studying in between a little bit. And then I started to meet some artists and I was walking around Barcelona a lot and sort of discovered Gaudi and the Parque Guay and his buildings. And and I transformed. I stopped becoming interested in the nightclubs and became more interested in, in the art. At one point, they took us to see um, the Dali Museum in Figueres, which has changed quite a bit. It was then, Dali was still alive and it was it was much more his hands-on creation. Mm-hmm. It, it's still an amazing place, but it was it was different. And so I just became fascinated with surrealism and Dali and wanted to have a work of art and was lucky enough to buy it. It's meaningless, but it was it was something mm. that Dali had touched yeah. and that I could barely afford. You still have it? I do. It's just a little thing, a personal <laughs> thing. Uh, how did you end up in Spain? What led you to Spain? I was living in, in Miami and Miami is really a gateway to Latin America. There's an amazing Cuban population and South American population there. I didn't speak Spanish. 
I thought it was important for me to get away and go to Europe and see what Europe was like. And really, I wanted to learn Spanish. I, I didn't realize how much it would impact me. Uh, just being an American, we sort of think we are the entire planet. It's the way we're raised, and it's such a vast country, and basically mm -hmm. everybody's speaking the same language, and the variations on the culture are all Americanized variations. And being in a place that was so much older, had so much more history, integrating into that culture, learning a language, learning about art and architecture, it really had a big impact on me. And it put me in a position where um, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Uh, my father was a real estate developer and I thought I wanted to go into real estate, but it seemed kind of boring you know, building a strip mall and putting a supermarket and a drug chain in wasn't exciting me <laughs> after being in Barcelona. And I also thought, you know, maybe I would be an art dealer, but being an art dealer in Miami, it was obvious to me, even at that young age, it was totally impractical. And I didn't know what to do. So I went to law school. Mm. And that, that was at University of Michigan or? I graduated from Michigan mm -hmm. and then I went to University of Miami Law School. Mm. And I, you got a BA from Michigan What in, in what? Michigan had this ideal degree for me. It was called a bachelor in general studies. Why people have to get stuck having a major, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. And the requirement was that half of your classes were just upper level classes. I took um, writing, history of art, literature, and business classes. You know, all kinds of things that interested me. And so I got the kind of education I wanted to get, which in a way I also did in law school. Mm. I studied a lot of business type classes in law school. And so it wasn't just like learning about law, but I also got, you know, some, some aspects mm. of an MBA. And how did law school or how has it, I guess, shaped you as a developer? Well, law school was an amazing time in my life. I was doing triathlons. So I was hmm. exercising vigorously. I was eating very healthy. I was studying. So it was like studying, exercising, eating. It was a, an amazing time in my life. And I spent a lot of time thinking. Law school teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to analyze things and how to how to dig in deeper and how to express yourself and the different angles of things. And so, you know, law school was a great experience for me. It really helped me get ready. In, in business, it made me more sophisticated, especially about the terminology and the meaning of things. And so much of business involves contracts and understanding the mechanical process of business. And so I felt like I had a real advantage uh, when I went into real estate. You know, if I was working on leasing or buying a building or going under contract for it or negotiating a loan, those documents meant more to me mm. than they possibly could have had I not gone to law school. Mm. And I read that initially you wanted to have like a studio space so you could invite artists. Uh, that was sort of your entree into uh, real estate. Yeah, so while I was in law school, I had rented some storefronts in South Beach. It was a cheap place to get space, and I would invite artists to come and 
uh, work there. And then I would sort of quasi manage their careers, like organize a show or sell some artwork. I'd organize their supplies. And so I was working with artists in that way. And this good friend of mine from Barcelona, Robert Yimos, came and he was in the storefront. And he's not a difficult guy at all, but he was like complaining because all these homeless people would just wander in the store and bother him. (laughs) And so he didn't want a storefront. And I realized like I had to up my game. And so I wanted to find like a loft that would be above the ground on a second floor space and that would have all Northern exposed light. So there'd be constant light, which is the Mm -hmm. ideal kind of space for a painter. And I, I had great fortune. I met uh, the second mentor in my life, a man named Tony Goldman. Uh, and he owned several properties, but he had just acquired two buildings in South Beach and asked if I wanted to be his partner. Um, and I was trying to get him to just sell me the studio mm-hmm. on the second floor of one of those buildings. But he said, oh, no, no, you can't buy just that. But if you want, you could buy 50% of these two buildings. And I've told this story. I, I'm I'm sitting there and thinking, you know, I didn't know Tony at the time. I'm thinking, this New Yorker thinks I'm a Miami bumpkin. And, <laughs> you know, he's going to take me for a ride. So very innocently, I looked at him and I said, well, how much capital would I have to pay you for the these two prime corners in South Beach, the corner of Fifth and Washington and the corner of Fifth and Ocean Drive? And Tony looked at me really seriously and he said, you're going to have to put $20,000 down. And so I kind of like paused and then said if i give you all that money can i have the studio for free and so tony and i shook hands and we were in business together and i really Mm. learned a lot from him Mm. tony was a great community builder he understood like going into areas and helping to transform them also getting the community to work together he was a real community leader Tony was a, a very important influence on my life. Mm. His daughter, Jessica, now runs the business and she's doing an amazing job. And another person you worked with during that time was the, the Island Records founder, Chris Blackwell. So after working with Tony for a while, I had bought this old hotel in South Beach on 12th and Collins called the Webster Hotel. And then a short period of time after that, someone who I didn't know, Chris Blackwell, bought the Marlin Hotel. And the architect who had worked on the Webster was talking to Chris, and Chris wanted to meet me. And I remember when Chris and I first met, he came to the Webster and looked around and you know, asked if I wanted to be his partner in developing the Marlin. And it sounded like a good opportunity. Anyway, Chris taught me to produce creativity. He approached real estate like, making a record album it was a it was a different kind of thing he's such a brilliant guy Mm. he was a major factor as was tony in this transformation of south beach when we opened the marlin hotel which was a 12-room hotel we put a model agency in there of course and a recording studio because it was chris's and he had an apartment there and there was a little jamaican restaurant But it was the opening, basically, of a 12-room hotel in South Beach, which wasn't much at the time. And U2 came to the opening. It was the top model era. And so Naomi, Mm -hmm. Kate, and Christy Turlington came, Kate Moss. 
it was like the biggest deal and Miami exploded. South Beach exploded. Everybody was talking about it and there was a mm. lot of buzz and energy. Mm. Chris was a, a powerful force. He still is, but he he was like a, a central, central component of what made South Beach work. And I had this amazing experience working with him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it, it's interesting now you look at it and um, it's become so developed and it's kind of gone from this age of like, you know, people associating Miami or South Beach with like Julio Iglesias or <laughs> Miami Vice or something to something to now actually associating with like luxury hotels and a, a very different kind of Miami Beach, a less seedy one, perhaps. Yes. Uh, I remember Chris taught me this analogy. You know, there was a period in the 60s where you could go and see the Rolling Stones playing in a bar. And a lot less people saw them. They became fans. I mean, there's a magic to that moment that's irreplaceable, being there. And then over time, they progress. And at some point, you know, they're playing in a football stadium for 40,000 people. And they're never going to be those same guys that were the guys in that bar. But it can still be a great experience and they can still involve, evolve and improve. And that's really what, what I was saying about neighborhoods. They can time, as time passes, they will evolve, but they can get better and better or they can get worse. They can mm. get over-commercialized. And mm. I think in, in Miami Beach, there's good examples of both. Right. The, the overall progress is really positive, but you can also see how certain parts of it became over-commercialized and less interesting. And that's why now in Miami you have these other neighborhoods like the Design District or Wynwood, which is right. adjacent to the Design District. And Tony Goldman, he was really the catalyst for Wynwood mm. becoming what it's become. Mm. So in the late 90s, what led you toward that Wynwood area, toward where the Design District is now? I'd like to say it was some great vision, but it was much simpler than that. Um, we became the largest property holder in South Beach in the historical district. We own blocks of property on Collins, Ocean, Washington, south of Fifth Street, Espinola Way, Lincoln Road. And really, if you look at it in a commercial neighborhood sense, it ends there. Miami Beach sort of becomes Collins Avenue, one street, and residential neighborhoods. And so the next commercial neighborhood is over the bridge in the city of Miami. And if at first everyone thought that I was crazy to try to do things in South Beach, then they thought I got lucky in South Beach, but that I was really crazy to start investing in the city of Miami. Because at that time, the city of Miami was thought of as as hopeless. When people think of Miami, they would be thinking of like Coconut Grove, Coral Gables, Miami Beach, Bal Harbor, these areas that are not really technically the city of Miami. And the city of Miami was was fairly run down. There was downtown, but downtown was pretty unimpressive. And there were a couple mm. great buildings by Architectonica on Brickle Avenue. But people thought it was crazy. I loved it because 
it was the next neighborhood and that's what I'd been doing. Like I started in one section of South Beach and I kept going south and north. And when I'd hit those borders, the next place was over the bridge. So I thought that would be easy. Mm. <laughs> and what was your sort of first step? I understand you were thinking a lot about new urbanism. You, you brought in DPZ uh, in the early 2000s. So DPZ did a master plan. I was always... Um, fascinated with Andres and Liz, they really got it right. Mm. They were the advocates of urban design. Yeah. Uh, Andres Duani and, and Liz Platter's yes. Zybert. Sorry, I, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> of course, I would just assume everybody would know if you say Andres <laughs> and Liz, but some people might think it's a rock band or something. <laughs> um, yes. So um, DPZ was their firm, and they founded the newer urbanist movement. Mm. One of the things that uh, I think was just incorrectly judged is that new urbanist communities always had sort of classical architecture. Right. And so modernist architects, architects were anti-new urbanism and DPZ, mm -hmm. which was a tremendous mistake. It was right. a, a complete misnomer because you could do a new urbanist neighborhood with modern architecture, you could do it with historical architecture. What was important was you were thinking about urban design, which no one ever thinks about. And mm. Andres and Liz were advocating for that. And I, I really believed in it. And so when we started in the design district, we worked with them to create a master plan and begin to think about it. And they were, they were very helpful. They've also just had a big influence on me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think with new urbanism, some of the complication comes from history right and and even even a polarizing figure um like like the architect leon creer who kind of comes from this moment and was a proponent of albert speer which has plenty of complications i guess how do you view new urbanism in terms of where miami's going where the world's going which is about more about automation less about auto travel more about community i think well, well, that's the thing. What new urbanism in its moment was saying was stop building suburban neighborhoods around golf courses and build places that mm -hmm. have a sense of community. Use the traditional urban design as a, as a catalyst to community making. And I think that was right. When you look at existing cities, there are urban design features that can enhance them. And you can think about them when you're looking at new places, how they're laid out as a material factor. And I think that there's, in general, migration during this period back to the cities. Mm. People realize that living farther and farther away and spending more and more time in your car and having more space isn't necessarily the best trade-off. And so finding that balance between living in a real community and also having like the right kind of space is is what we've evolved to. It's certainly what interests me because if if I want to be out in the country, I'd like to really be out in the country, mm. you know, in nature, not driving for an hour and a half to be in a suburb. That's that's my own personal yeah. value system. Yeah, I'm yeah. not criticizing anybody else because everybody has what they like, and that's what makes the world an interesting place. Yeah. So so you get these 18 square blocks or so in in the district. How do you go about deciding or figuring out how you want to approach developing this this neighborhood? Well, the first thing 
we did was we acquired and assembled property quietly. And the reason for that was we, in a local sense, had developed a name, a big name, because South Beach had become very successful. And we didn't want to drive a lot of speculation, which would inhibit our ability to make acquisitions. And I spent probably two or three years buying up property quietly in the mm. design district. And then had to figure out with a team that that I was working with, like what we were going to do with it. And part of it was this urban design, but then programmatically, like what were we going to do? And it was historically a furniture neighborhood. Right. Theodore Moore, uh, who, who built a furniture company, and now there's the Moore Building, kind of named after him, had his first store in, in the area in the 1920s. Yes. What his son told me was that he owned a pineapple farm, huh. and then he built uh, the Moore Building as like a furniture showroom. And that was in the 20s. And eventually the design district became like a, a furniture place where you'd have these like high-end showrooms. There's mm. like places like the D&D building in New York. It was the business model in the US. In the 80s, it really started to decline. And by the 90s, it was, it was really much more so than even South Beach practically defunct. Mm. There, it was half occupied. There were residual furniture companies there. Rents were five dollars a foot. It was wow. it was like barely barely alive. What what was it about you know the eighties culture that that kind of led to this demise? Well, what had happened was a similar thing that had happened to Lincoln Road on Miami Beach with retail. So Lincoln Road was the center of retail, and then this beautiful mall was built in Bell Harbor called Bell Harbor Shops, mm-hmm. and Bell Harbor took all the life out of Lincoln Road. And Lincoln Road's model became less desirable, like people wanted more of a mall environment. And and similarly, the design district, which was also a neighborhood and had all these furniture showrooms, became very challenged by a building in Fort Lauderdale called Dakota, Mm. which was a furniture Mm -hmm. showroom building. And so by the time I got involved, I would say Dakota had somewhere between 95 and 99% of the market and the design district had somewhere between one and 5%. And I found something extremely bothersome, not about Dakota, but about design in the United States. And that was that most of this high-end design was sold in these furniture showroom buildings and you weren't even allowed to walk in if you weren't with a licensed professional. And it was... Some people would resent this, but it's like sort of like a, a, a legal kickback system. So the designers were the only ones with access to the showrooms, and they would get a commission for selling the furniture in the showrooms. And it was a big commission. It was like 30% or something. And so the whole system was ingrained that way. The problem with it, because I didn't care about the way people are remunerated, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't disclosed or or whatever, but the the problem with it was that Design was hidden from the public. I mean, you think about fashion or Mm -hmm. art, Mm -hmm. you think about people walking in and having access, but there literally design was being treated like a prescription drug. (laughs) If you didn't have a design doctor next to you, you weren't allowed to look at it. And so design was, was not important to people. You know, yeah. it was important to decorators who would, would yeah. help you out. And, and when access is education, I mean, I think about that all the time. You know, why, why, why is Europe so much more cultured and educated on design? Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's access. 
So I wanted to challenge that, which was challenging the way the national industry was working. And I wanted to bring design back on the street like it is in Europe. Mm. Because in Europe, the, furni- the furniture is accessible. It's on the street. It's, it's not this system. And it took time. But within a few years, we probably had about 50% of the market share. Mm. Dakota would have this like weird thing. They had a radius clause, which was illegal. But if you wanted to open there where you would do all the business, you weren't allowed to open anywhere else in South Florida. And so I hired a really good lawyer and we actually prepared a lawsuit because we knew that that was illegal. It's it's a restriction on trade that's illegal to have mm. a radius clause that's too Here's your law school coming in here. Yeah, and it's anti-competitive, my law school. And so I was ready to file the lawsuit as soon as I had a problem. But what happened was I was talking to everybody. And because we had this like new vision, all the new people that were coming to the market were choosing us over Mm. Dakota. Like Holly Hunt. Holly Hunt was was the Mm. first and really validated us because she was a huge name. And Noel came and... There were lots of good furniture brands that came. And so this anti-competitive thing that Dakota was doing was actually working to our advantage because everyone had to choose and they were choosing us. Mm. And after a few years, as I said, we ended up going from 1% to 50% of the market. Uh, The Dakota people responded that they were going to expand Dakota. That was their response. And they expanded Dakota and it never filled up. Mm. Like the design district became more and more the place. Dakota still existed, but we ended up gaining market share. The problem with that is that furniture doesn't really attract a lot of people. I always say this, it's how often do you buy a sofa? (laughs) And so the neighborhood was working well, but there were there wasn't it wasn't like a populated place. Right. It was economically working and we were making good profits. And so I began to think, well, what's the best way yeah. to make it more attractive to people? So at a restaurant or Well, I I think, you know, when I look back, I've always, you know, probably just been lucky because I've stumbled on things that have worked. But like in South Beach you know, the real catalyst for South Beach, it wasn't that model I was saying I didn't want to do, you know, putting a supermarket and a drug chain and getting a bunch of other stores to open around it. What we did was we began to work with the fashion industry. And so it became one of the premier places in the world for fashion catalogs or catalogs at the time. That was like the internet didn't exist. And so it was a big industry. And after a couple of years, you'd walk around South Beach and every block you'd see beautiful models doing photo shoots. Like it was being professionally done. And then working with Chris and adding music and film started to be done in Miami. And so it wasn't the normal business model that people gravitate to, like you said, restaurants. South Beach became a hot place because these creative industries started to work there. And when you have beautiful people, other people want to be around beautiful people and it it feeds itself. Became like a fun in the sun place, South Beach. <laughs> then in the design district, what happened was I had been going to Salone and Salone is this furniture fair. Yeah. It's an industry trade show in Milan, but I was fascinated by it. I was going there to get the 
great European brands to open stores in the United States because they understood not going to the decorator center. They wanted to be on the street. And I was going there every year. But what blew me away about Salone was all of Milano that week was celebrating design. I'd never seen Mm -hmm. anything like it. Today, it's more common. But for a whole city to galvanize around culture Mm -hmm. and be doing parties and exhibitions, you didn't even need to go to the furniture fair. You'd have like the best week of your life just hanging out at Salone. I I stayed in the city this year. I didn't go to the fair. (laughs) So you're a witness. So in about... 1998 or 99, the then director of Art Basel and his assistant who became the director and his close friend, Sam Keller, approached me because they had an idea of bringing Art Basel to Mm -hmm. Miami. Mm -hmm. And I, as an art collector, I knew what Art Basel was, but I also was really intrigued with Salone. So my agenda was, let's do an art version of Salone not a trade show, but let's get all of Miami to celebrate art that week. And so I was helpful, as was another close friend and some other people, in helping secure the rights for Art Basel to come. We we worked really hard on doing that. It's funny, too, because it's like Basel's sort of the opposite of Miami Beach. So much so. Basel, Switzerland. Right. And if you went to Art Basel in Switzerland, which I had been doing, it was the best art fair in the world. But it was very quiet. You'd go to the fair, buy some art. You'd go to the Byler Museum and you'd go home. There was, it wasn't a cult. It was no Salone or cultural happening. But my idea was like, let's take the greatest art fair in the world, mm-hmm. combine it with the sex appeal of Miami and make it a cultural happening. And so we made a deal with Art Basel that we would do in the design district, cultural events and exhibitions. And they would exclusively market that to mm. so they would all the people that were coming mm. to Art Basel would also know about the right. design district and come. So that was sort of the birth of the Design Miami Fair in a way. It was a precursor. So mm. for the first few years when Art Basel was in Miami, all kinds of events and exhibitions. But what was even more important was everybody started competing with it. So all over Miami People were opening collections, people were going to parties, and the design district was probably like the most central place. The Guggenheim Museum came, the Pompey Dew Museum came and did things with us. You know, Jeffrey Deitch would do these big shows. It was like, it was really an exciting thing. And I, like a nut, was taking all the profits from the furniture rentals that we were doing, you know, the showroom rentals, and I was investing all of it into that one week in Miami. Like, <laughs> a crazy amount of money. But the design district was becoming more and more popular. Every fashion brand was calling me and wanting to do things that week. It it really put the design district on the mat. And so now I'm sitting here and it's like, I've been doing this for a few years. I'm thinking, I've got to figure out a way to monetize it or at least get it to break even. And Sam Keller asked if I would consider doing a design show because design dealers wanted to do something in the fair and the art dealers didn't want furniture to be there and he didn't want it to go somewhere else. Like he knew that something was going to happen. Sam's a brilliant guy. So I said, yes. And a person who's my girlfriend at the time, wonderful woman, uh, Ambra Mehta and I founded Design Miami in 2005 in the design district. And it exploded because no one had ever created an event like 
in the art spirit where you could collect mm-hmm. contemporary limited edition design and historical design. It was like, it really did impact the world and it impacted me. Right. And I can say that because it wasn't my idea. If it was my idea, I couldn't brag about it so much. <laughs> <laughs> it was Sam's idea. And Ombra did a great job launching it. And so instead of spending all that money marketing the design district and paying for all these things, it became like a little business, mm. uh, Design Miami. But it really was a big deal. I mean, the first year we would give an award designer of the year and Zaha Hadid was the first recipient. Right, who, who then went on to design installation in the Moore building. That year, like yeah. as part of her thing. Next year was Mark Newson, and he did that beautiful fence in front of Dash. Mm. It, it became a big thing. It got so big, it didn't fit in the design district anymore. We had to move it out eventually. But it really was a catalyst. And that began to connect me with a lot of fashion brands. And so I began to think, we've got to get fashion because if you have art, design, mm-hmm. there was some restaurants that opened mm-hmm. by then and you add fashion in, this neighborhood will be incredible. It'll, it'll really become a unique place. And it was hard because... The same thing I had confronted with furniture, with Dakota, there was the exact same problem with fashion. This great mall, Bell Harbor, had a radius clause and wouldn't allow anyone to open in a second location. And it was like, I was getting the edgy brands that didn't care about that. Like Christian Lebouton opened a store. Mm -hmm. It was like, I think his sixth or seventh store in the world at the time, Mm -hmm. maybe his eighth or ninth. Marnie and Margiela. Thomas Meyer. It was these brands that didn't go to, you know, they, they weren't going to go to Madison Avenue mm-hmm. anyway. And that gave us a little bit of credibility, especially Christian Lebouton, because he exploded. He became like the center of the universe right. in fashion. And he really became a good friend and and was a great supporter. But because Design Miami was there, I had met a man named Michael Burke. Mm. And Michael at the time was the CEO of Fendi. And Fendi was a sponsor of Design Miami. And so every year, Michael was coming to this amazing event in the design district and really helping make it a great event because Fendi still is an important Mm -hmm. ingredient in Design Miami and the the whole culture of the show. And one day I said to Michael, I said, Michael, like, why doesn't LVMH open stores here? And he said, it's a great idea. (laughs) And so... Michael introduced me to the group, the affiliate of LVMH, L. Catterton, which became my partners. They ended up buying and investing with us in the design district. And as part of it, all of LVMH committed that they would come. Mm -hmm. And then we got the support of brands like Hermes and Cartier, and they all closed in the, the competitive property because of the radius clause and agreed to come with us and build these big, beautiful flagships. Right. Yeah. So how did you kind of go about designing this district? We brought Andre Stwani and Liz platter Zyper, <laughs> DPZ back yeah, and did a new master plan, which was really also heavily influenced by uh, the leadership at L. Catterton. I think they did a, a, a brilliant job. And of course, this fit in with my methodology because I, as a believer in new urbanism, thought you do great urban design and then you add the structures and the structures sort of conform to the general code, but then people can get really creative. Mm. And 
what better for fashion than to let these brands just go crazy and do whatever they want and build these flagship buildings. It's kind of like Tokyo to me. I mean, Tokyo is the one place where you see unbelievable architecture and design in these fashion it's stores. It's so you know? funny you say that because I was in um, Tokyo two years ago and I went into one of those Japanese 7-Elevens and I was like, they should have one of these in the design district. <laughs> Thank you. We need some tenants, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get <laughs> call, on it right call away. Call 7-Eleven. You know the Japanese one. We want. We want <laughs> but you know, you look at like what Prada did, yeah. with their building, and I mean, you look at all the architecture there in, mm-hmm. in Tokyo, and it's it's really extraordinary. It's so modern, and it, it's definitely the big influence. I I think for me in the design district. So that was my thing. Like, do a great mm-hmm. plan, and then get these like freestanding buildings where we would do some of our own buildings with lots of brands in them. And then the brands, some brands could do their mm. own buildings and turn it into this urban environment mm. that is really expressive and changes the game for retail. It's not right. like anything else. There's sort of an urban fabric to what you're doing because each building's a little different. You're kind of... It's a neighborhood. Yeah. You know, it's not a mall. Yeah, yeah. So more recently, um, some cultural institutions kind of came about. Like you, you co-founded the Institute of contemporary art in Miami, which is right there in the district. And there's the Dela Cruz collection right there, the Rubel family collection nearby. What's next? You have these design stores, then luxury stores, restaurants, these cultural institutions. Is it like, is it a hotel? Is it, is it more office space? Are you? So, so first of all, it wasn't like the fashion came and then the culture came, (laughs) the culture came and then the fashion came. The, the Dela Cruz is, started Rosa Dela Cruz and I started with a building called the Moore Space mm-hmm. in 2002. So it it became like a place for art before it became a okay. place for for yeah. fashion. And then Carlos and Rosa Dela Cruz built the Dela Cruz collection building 8 years after we had been collaborating and it was such a blessing to have them validate the design district and make, you know, a permanent building for their collection there. When the ICA came about, um, we worked with the the Bremens, who are Irma Norman Bremen, amazing mm-hmm. collectors mm-hmm. and real philanthropists. And Norman and I were having lunch, and he said, "You know, Craig, if you you and your partners will give the land, I'll build the building." <laughs> and I said, "Great!" <laughs> you know, yeah. like I mean, it was such an amazing thing because. I don't think there are too many stories like that where you have an important mm. cultural institution that gets built literally by two people who are friends just having lunch and one of them comes up with a brilliant idea. And I mean, we made a contribution, but the Bremens really deserve credit mm. and the board. The, mm. the board has uh, of the ICA has been great. And there's lots of other cool cultural places that have always been. The design district always had lots of art studios and we we always were were more part of the cultural community. Right. Um, and both grew and expanded together. So there was more fashion and then more culture. And now we've got about a million square feet of buildings there. Wow. We've got another couple million square feet of development rights. And we're focused on adding some retail, but more vertical kind of uses. So there'll be hotels and office buildings and residential buildings. We don't want to do it in a traditional way. It's the design district. So we want to figure out how to make it very cool and to make each component on brand with the design district. 
which is an exciting time because with technology and all these new businesses that are coming out mm. that are blurring the lines between residential and hotel and office, I, I think there's some really exciting opportunities and we're going to announce a few projects probably in the next few months. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to your view of it in the sort of larger scope of Miami itself. I mean, you mentioned Bell Harbor and Lincoln Road. There's also Brickell City Center. And your wife actually oversees Aventura Mall. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you view those other things? Are they still competitors? Are they? They're partially competitors, but I love Bell Harbor Shops. It's a beautiful, iconic place. I hope the Whitmans don't do some big expansion and ruin it because it's got such charm and beauty mm-hmm. and legacy. My wife is absolutely brilliant and the expansion she's done at Aventura is mind-blowing. The Karsten Holler slide and the Haas Brothers fountains, the new Apple store. By collaborating, Aventura now has luxury also. And that's probably the best formula. Aventura is a big mall with mm. 28 million people a year visiting it. The design district is you know, much smaller, more exclusive, but those brands can easily be at both. It's a 45-minute drive, 40-minute drive between the two, and I think it's very complimentary. I love what uh, Swire has done at Brickle City Center. Brickle Avenue is a place where there, there's just so many people there, and if you're not there and you don't have to, you kind of don't want to go there, and if you are there, you don't want to have to deal with getting out, and Brickle City Center, I think, is the soul of of what's happening on Brickle. Mm. There's room for all of it. Of course, sometimes we're competing to get a tenant or we're taking business away from each other, but yeah. I, I think it's really big enough for all of them. And mm. the the big compliment to the design district is Aventura Mall because there's crossover, but they're very different customers. Yeah. We found like brands that were in Bal Harbor exclusively and came to the design district in Aventura uh, literally tripled their sales. Mm. So that shows you how much pent up potential there was and how complimentary. If you're in design district and Bal Harbor, maybe you'll get one and a half times your sales, maybe two times. If you're in design district in Aventura, you'll get three times your sales. Mm. I, I was wondering how that might might work or what the conversations with your wife are like when <laughs> well what i what i tell everyone is that she just sees what i do copies me and then tries to steal all our tenants <laughs> and she laughs, <laughs> i read that uh I, I read that she calls you sc which is supreme commander <laughs> what's that about <laughs> so um jackie is is a very very strong yeah. personality and it's a joke that i make i say you know in a partnership with Jackie, you need to control 51% to break even. <laughs> so I make a joke that she calls me Supreme Commander because everybody knows she would never, you know, like address anyone as Supreme Commander. And the funny thing is now all our friends call me SC whenever she's around yeah. just to, you know, yeah. tease her. The, the other name for you that, that she doesn't call you certainly, but I, I uh, Architectural Digest described you as was Sorcerer of South Beach, which I thought wow. was... Interesting. A lot of people made South Beach happen, and yeah. I was really blessed to be yeah. a spoke in yeah. that wheel. Yeah, I want to close kind of on um, some personal stuff like taste and collecting, and you know, you mentioned triathlon. I know you're like a really avid uh, reader. Where where do you go to kind of unplug? You know, when you're when you're not in the midst of this sort of urban, you know, what do you do? What 
it's what gets you to slow down take take your mind off to me the 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 great luxury in life is to be able to experience nature and the wilderness and my favorite is to really be on the river you know to be on great rivers this summer we we had the incredible fortune to be able to spend 11 days on the grand canyon and do 200 miles on the grand canyon that that to me is the the ultimate i mean i know people you know like fancy hotels or resorts or yachts or things and i respect that but like to me that's not real luxury luxury is being able to disconnect and experience nature mm. and so that that's what i love mm. yeah i read you, you you've been whitewater rafting in montana with the Haas brothers <laughs> yes that was an amazing time and we actually need to figure out a, a reunion a good friend uh george lindeman and i are both river people mm. and george invited me and the Haas brothers on a trip a couple years ago, and it was they're they're, mm. they're such good guys. Mm. I'm I'm huge fans of mm. of Simon and Nikki, and I mean what Jackie did with them in Aventura Mall that mm. that sculpture, the fountain sculpture, is just it's so beautiful. I I I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and and collecting clearly is another place where you take your mind kind of into another uh, realm. What's your, generally your, been your approach to collecting? I mean, you have so many different important works, whether it's a you know, Baldessari or more than a thousand works, actually. You know, David Hammond's Goya prints, Louis Bourgeois, Vito Acconci, uh, Joseph Boys. I um, I like to look at art. I enjoy looking at art, and that's really what it's all about. It's something I can't really help doing. Mainly as a collector, I try to collect the new, young, contemporary art, but I've always grounded my collection in the historical influences. So for a while, I was collecting all of these young California artists, and then I realized, well, they're all influenced. Most of them have studied with John Baldessari and I met John and I mean John is really one of the most important contributors yeah. to the history of art and so I started collecting John's work mm. and I had the opportunity to buy a great masterpiece by Marcel Duchamp and acquired that at some point and that's the way I collect I'm mainly collecting the young artists but mm. then I'll go back in history it's like going into a wormhole of hyperlinks and that's what, to me, art is about, that, mm. that continuation, the way that mm. the young artists are, who are they influenced by and who are the people that influenced them influenced by. You look at that period of Picasso and, I mean, Picasso to me is in part, you know, he and Goya, how I learned about art and the way he, at the beginning of the 20th century, was going to Paris from, from Barcelona and inspired by the impressionists and you know how he then evolved into that blue and rose period and then with brock largely to me influenced by Cezanne, created cubism and how he always tapped back into the history of art or what was going on at the time and and made his comment on it and was really able to absorb everything around him and so it's with that kind of thinking you know learning about goya and how Goya, at the end of his life, I mean, his most important works, those black paintings, he was just making them for himself. 
they were for his house. He was painting them on his walls. He wasn't he wasn't doing it to sell them or as a commission from mm. the royal family. He'd been, you know, excommunicated. And Picasso, how much he invented and how much he was able to appropriate from other artists and and then incorporate in an equal or better way into his own art. It's all fun. That's that's like I guess you asked me, I don't know how much disconnecting I do, but it's those experiences, whether it's looking at nature or looking at art or reading or spending time with people. That's that's really what I enjoy doing in life. Has collecting art shaped the way you think as a developer? Yes, because I'm interested in that creative process. And I think that our projects are all about working with talented creative people. I don't I don't consider myself an artist. I'm more like a producer. You know, that's why that's why what I learned from Chris Blackwell was so important because Chris isn't a musician, but he produced a lot of creativity. And largely because of him mm. and as a community builder because of Tony and as a business person because of my dad and and all the things that they taught me I infuse that creative process and work with creative people in our business. And mm. I think that's what makes a place like the design district special. Yeah, You ask like why the Burlack brothers or why Zaha Hadid <laughs> or why Buckminster Fuller? Well, where else can you go see the three of them? In 10 minutes? <laughs> it's, it's your record label. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thanks Craig. This is great. It's great having you here today. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 